Heavenly Father, we do thank you and we praise you, Lord, again for your word. We thank you that, again, it's the living, breathing word of God. It's not an old, antiquated book. We thank you, Lord, that it will apply to the life of everyone in this room. If we'll just be receptive, Father God, to the moving of your Holy Spirit. So, Lord, we ask again that you would be our teacher, that you would be glorified, that we'd be transformed to your image, that we'd become the men and women of God that you've called us to be. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. In Exodus 11, we're going to continue, and we're going to look at the final plague upon Egypt. And the plagues of Egypt came because of disobedience. Because God had sent, they had gone into bondage in Egypt, Israel had, because they'd been disobedient to God. They'd been in bondage for over 400 years. And in the midst of that, we know way back in Exodus chapter 2, that they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord heard their voice, and the Lord, it says, that He heard them, and He went and He called Moses to go and be the deliverer. If you'll remember that Moses' initial response was, well, Lord, I can't do it. I'm a stutterer. Who shall I say sent me? Uh, tell, I, I don't even know your name. What, what, when I go back, what do I tell him your name is? And he said, I am that I am. And you know, the great thing about it is when we're called by God, it's not about how educated we are. It's not about how eloquent we are. It's about us dying and letting God work through us. Amen? You know what? Without him, we can do nothing, the Bible says. And Moses began as a man who was extremely humble. In chapter 4, God warned Pharaoh, and he said, You shall say to Pharaoh, when he's speaking to Moses, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. So all the way back in chapter 4, the warning came to Pharaoh that if he did not heed God's voice, that his firstborn son was going to die. And why? Because he said, Israel is my firstborn son. In Exodus chapter 5, we saw Pharaoh's response. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I don't care about this Lord. Who is the Lord? Well, we saw, we've been seeing over the last few chapters that Pharaoh's finding out just who the Lord is. Amen? He's getting, and he's finding out through heavy-duty judgment upon his life. You know, the world's in the same shape today. Most people say, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey Him? I want to be on the throne of my own life. I want to rule. I want to reign. I want to be king. And you know what? Whenever you do that, it leads to destruction. It leads to to a life that's filled with, with temptation, a life that's filled with struggles, a life that's filled with depression. The Bible says that joy originates with God. So who is the Lord? So in in chapter 7 through 10, the last few weeks, we saw God introduce Himself to Pharaoh by bringing nine different plagues designed to reveal God's power, and also to reveal God's mercy. Because he had told them that he was going to slay his firstborn son. That he was going to bring the ultimate judgment. But before he did that, he brought smaller judgments along the way that pointed man to Christ, that pointed him to see that he, that he needed to bow down and repent and turn his life over to God. And as each one of these, these judgments came, instead of repenting, he became harder and harder in his heart. He refute, it would also refute the gods of Egypt. Egypt had over three, I just read this, and I, I can't believe it's, it's really the right number, but I guess so because I read it in several places. They had over three million gods. That's a lot of gods. That's why they had a god of flies and a god of... Remember how we've been going over that? They had a god of boils. You're thinking the god of boils. Who made that up? But they had a god of boils. They had all these different gods that they served, right? They had all these different gods that cover every different incident. But the reality is all those gods were dead. None of those gods were real. So we saw in the very first plague, he turned water into blood. And it killed all the fish, and it destroyed their water supply. And it's interesting to note that the first miracle that we see Moses perform is water into blood, and the first miracle that Jesus performed was turning water into 
into wine, which is a picture of his shed blood upon the cross. The water into blood pointed to judgment. The water into wine pointed to Jesus' redemption. The second plague was frogs. Frogs covered the land. They were in their beds, their ovens, their bowl, in their bowls. It was everywhere. And it refuted their, they had a frog god that was half woman, half frog. That's pretty attractive, I think. So they had this half frog, half woman god. And guess what? That god was refuted because of the frogs in the land. The next one was lice. And you know, we know that the Egyptians, you see pictures of Egyptians even today, they would shave their bodies every other day, their entire body, because of a great fear of, of being defiled. And lice was one of their greatest fears. And they had a lice god. Well, the lice god didn't work out too well, because the lice showed up and infested them big time. We saw after the lice god, and again, each time Pharaoh would have an opportunity to repent. Each time Moses would come to him and say, the Lord desires that you would repent. And every time he'd cry out and say, well, tell the Lord to stop and then I'll, I'll let the people go. And then as soon as the, the problem or the struggle went away, he would harden his heart even more. And that's a picture of what happens in a lot of Christians' lives today. You know, we get in, you know, the drowning Christian syndrome, right? The drowning atheist even, where we're going through life and things get tough and so we run to God. And we're right there and we're, we're desperate for him and we're praying and we're seeking his face and then things get better and all of a sudden we don't need God anymore. Well, that's what Pharaoh was doing. He was desperate for God when the lice was infesting. He was desperate for God when things were difficult. But as soon as the difficulty went away, he stopped looking to the Lord. We see that the fifth plague was, the fourth plague was flies. The fifth plague was diseased livestock. Again, this is what they considered to be their wealth and all their cows and all their animals are dropping dead all over the place. The sixth plague was boils, head to toe, still no repentance. The seventh plague was hail falling from the sky. Now hail, this hail was falling from the sky and it was on fire. And literally because of their disobedience, all hail broke loose, right? It all fell down on top of them and they still didn't repent. They still were not turned back to God. They continued to harden their heart more and more and more. Now the interesting part is that in the midst of all of these plagues, God continued to protect and watch over Israel. In the midst of all the stuff that was going on, he watched over his own people. And then two weeks ago, we saw the locust, and then finally darkness. It said the darkness was so dark it could be felt. And this, to me, is a picture of the ultimate, the ultimate struggle that will happen in hell, and that's separation from Almighty God. When man will be separated from God for all time, and it will be pitch black. It will be darkness like nobody's ever seen before. It will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So... Pharaoh refused to let Israel go and told Moses that if he ever saw him again, he was going to kill him. He says, Moses, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. So that's where we get to in, verse, in chapter 11. So let's pick up. And tonight we're going to see a clear picture of God's righteous judgment against those who repeatedly reject him and refuse to repent and give up their throne and God's divine deliverance for those who turn to him. You know, the cross of Christ is one of two things to you. It's either a place of judgment or a place of deliverance. For those who don't know God, it's a place of judgment. For those who know Him, it, will be, it is a place of delivering us from sin and death. So we're going to begin in, in chapter 11, looking at God's ultimate judgment, announcing the death of the firstborn. Let's begin in verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, He will let you go from here. Whom he lets, when He lets you go, He will surely drive you out of here altogether. So the Lord said, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and Egypt. Now, Nine plagues have come, but yet another plague is going to come. Why is this ultimate plague going to come? Because he refused to, to receive each time God brought a merciful act. You know, God brought judgment to warn him so that he wouldn't have to bring the ultimate act of judgment. And the same is true of everybody on the planet today. God gives us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to know him as Lord and Savior. And there will be no man standing before God on judgment day saying, I didn't have a chance. 
God is a righteous and a just God who gives every man an opportunity. It is his desire that none should perish, no, not one. His opportunity for salvation is universal, but it's accepted on an individual basis. And we see here that he came to the, over and over and over. And the Lord says to Moses, God spoke to Moses. It's neat. I love that. The Lord spoke to Moses. How many of you want the Lord to speak to you? Raise your hand. Do you know that he desires that more than anything? He desires to have communion with you. He suffered and died on the cross that he might adopt you into his family. And the reality is that God is always speaking to us. We're just not listening. Amen? We get so busy with the cares of this world, we don't spend time in his word. We don't spend time in prayer. Then we say, man, I just can't figure out what to do with my life. I'm struggling with these decisions I need to make. And the first thing I'll do when I ask people when, they, when I'm counseling them is I'll say, how's your devotional life? And if I get that, uh, that, that's not a good sign, right? They'll say, well, devotional life, could you help me out with what that means? Well, how much time are you spending in the Word? How much time are you spending in prayer? God spoke to Moses because Moses sought the will of God constantly. And he spoke directly to Moses, and God used Moses to minister to Pharaoh. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. May we spend more time in His Word, listening for that still, small voice. And he speaks to Moses, and he sends Moses and says, look, I'm going to send one more plague. Pharaoh hasn't been listening, here it comes. Here comes the big one that I promised him all the way back in Exodus chapter 4 when I told him I was going to kill his son because he would not leave my firstborn, Israel, alone. Verse 2, Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. Now this is awesome. Where God guides, God provides. Amen? If God is leading and guiding, God will provide. You know, we came over here less than two years ago with a handful of people, and on Sunday mornings, God's really growing this place. It's doing great things. But you know what? Where God guides, God provides. God provided the place for us to meet. God provides for the financial needs. God takes care of it. And you know what? If God's not providing, God must not be guiding. Amen? A lot of times we try to do things in our own will. If we have to strive to make it happen, we have to strive to keep it going. And what we need to do is, we see here with Moses in this situation, these guys have been in bondage for 400 years. They're going to flee and leave Egypt. But as they leave Egypt, the Lord is going to provide for them as they leave. He says, I want you to go next door to these same people that have held you in bondage for over 400 years and ask for them to give, the, to, to give you their wealth. These people that have... Now, wait a minute. From the world's perspective, you'd think there's no way that's going to happen. Well, of course, from the world's perspective, there is no way that's going to happen unless God says so. Amen? And sometimes as Christians, we need to look and see that God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. We can't put God in a box. We can't limit what God can do. Our God can make Santa Cruz one of the most godly counties in the world. Amen? Can God do that? Now we look at it now, we say, oh, it's the new age capital, it's satanic, it's got all this weird stuff going on, and that, that's true. It looks like, you go downtown, it looks like the 60s all over again, you think you're in Haight-Ashbury, right? I mean, it's the tie-dye capital of the United States, and all those kinds of things. But the reality is that God can do a mighty work, and we need, we need not to limit God. And so they said, I want you to go next door, I want you to go all the people around you, and I want you to ask them to give you their stuff. Amazing. The slaves, I want all the slaves to go to the masters and say, I want your stuff. And you know what? They gave it to them. You know why they gave it to them? Because God moved on their hearts. And you know what? If I had lice and frogs and boils and darkness and hail falling out of the sky that was on fire, I'd say, whatever, take what, yeah, yeah, whatever you want. And knock yourself out, get it, go. Yeah, you guys are going to leave? Take it, please, and go. Right? I mean, I would be repenting myself, but if not, I would say, hey, nothing's worth this. Take all of it. My riches don't mean anything anymore. This God that you serve is way greater than anything that I have in my bank account. 
primed again by these nine plagues and through divine intervention, God gave the wealth to Israel. Moses' faithfulness and obedience also, we see in verse 3 there, brought both the respect of Pharaoh's servants and the Egyptian people. Even though Pharaoh hated him and said, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. But the people respected him. And you know what? As Christians, if we live lives sold out for Jesus Christ, we're going to get both of those reactions. We're going to have people that will respect us. We're going to have people that when they go through a trial in life, we're going to come and want to say, you know, you seem like, I've had people tell me this before, you know, you're a real religious guy. And, um, you know, I'm kind of going through something. And, and, you know, I was thinking, who do I know that probably prays? And I thought about you. So could could you, you know, I want to ask you a question. Could you pray for me? And the answer, of course, is always yes. But here's the thing. There's also people that are going to hate you because you have a relationship with God. So here we see Moses, hated by Pharaoh, but respected by the Egyptians. These people of the three million gods had a respect for Moses because he loved the Lord. Verse 4. And Moses said, Thus says the Lord God, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sits on the throne, even the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Then they shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as not like it before, nor shall be like it again. In fulfillment of Exodus chapter 4, when the Lord had said, Israel is my son, my firstborn, so I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me, but if you refuse to let him go, indeed I will kill your son, your firstborn. In response to his hardened heart, his rejection of Almighty God, judgment was coming. God's judgment is righteous. Our God is not a God up in the sky with a lightning bolt in his hand waiting for you to make a mistake so he can smoke you. Amen? A lot of people portray God that way. He's this big ogre with a you know, big white beard. Just, oh, wait, oh, get him, right? I mean, that's not God. Our God is a loving and a gracious God who came and suffered and died that we might have eternal life. And what happens here is this is righteous judgment. God was bringing righteous judgment upon Egypt. Why? Because they had refused to repent over and over and over and over again. Every person that goes to hell has to go over the cross of Christ to get there. That they say no, 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 over and over and over and over again. And that's exactly what's happened. And finally God says, okay, here comes the judgment that's righteous. And, he, and it's the firstborn, which is significant because in, in Egyptian homes, the firstborn held special birthrights. They were, they were given a, a higher place, a higher position. And so wiping out the firstborn would be devastating in many, many ways. Verse 7. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue, against man or beast, that you shall know the Lord God makes a difference between Egypt and Israel. Yes, our God plays favorites. Wait a minute, Pastor Dave. The Bible says He loves everyone. You're right. He does love everyone. He loves us all. He desires that none should perish, no, not one. And He loves Charles Manson as much as He loves me. But here's the reality. Those who turn and confess Him as Lord and Savior, the Bible says He adopts us into His family. The Bible says we become one of his kids. I am one of God's sons. You know what's awesome to me? Is that people can call me a lot of things. People can call me pastor. They can call me, you know, my, my children can call me dad. And, you know, but there's only one, other than my, my earthly father, there's only one who can call me son. That's what the Lord calls me. He doesn't call me pastor. He doesn't call me, sir, he calls me son. That's awesome to me. To think that Almighty God, the creator of the universe, looks down and he sees me. And he says, that's my son. 
Man, there's a joy that comes from that. Amen? And if you're here this, morning, this evening and you know the Lord, you're His son, you're His daughter, and He loves you so very much. He's a loving and a gracious and a merciful God. And we see here that He's going to make a difference between those who have repented of their sin to follow after Him and those who deny Him. You know, a lot of pastors don't want to talk about hell. Well, the reality is, I'd rather warn you about it than have you face it. Amen? And Jesus talks about hell a lot more than he talks about heaven. It's a real place. And you know, if my kids were running down the freeway, and I, I'd do everything I can to get them off the freeway. Amen? And the same is true of heaven and hell. It's a real place. And the Lord says in this verse, that you may know the Lord. And it does make a difference between Egypt and Israel. They're going to see... When God's hand moves this time, that there's a difference between what's going to happen to those who honor God and those who disobey Him. And we'll see it as we get to the next chapter. Again, the cross is either a place of judgment resulting in anguish and pain or a place of deliverance resulting in peace and tranquility. Verse 8. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people will follow you. After that I will go out. Then he went out with anger towards Pharaoh. Now listen to this. The result of this final plague upon Egypt would result in Pharaoh's servants humbling themselves before Moses and saying, please leave. But Pharaoh will continue to have a hardened heart. And it says that anger, he had great anger. Moses was a meek man. The Bible says he was the meekest man on the earth. But his anger was aroused at the continued hardening heart of Pharaoh. You know what? I think as people who love the Lord, there is a righteous anger that comes when you, when you see somebody who's heard about the love of God, they hear about it again and again and again, and they just continue the way they're going. I'm not angry. I, my heart's broken. It kills me. It kills me that there's, I have friends I've talked to about the Lord for 20 hours, and they still, their lives are a disaster. Their marriages are a mess. Their families are in turmoil. Their health's a mess because of drinking. And you sit there and you talk about the love of God with them, and they just glaze over and your heart breaks. And this is where Moses is with Pharaoh. He's done. He's like, man, I've come in here over and over and over and over, and Pharaoh, you just won't listen. Don't you know there's a loving God who cares for you? Haven't you seen his mighty hand over and over again? And you still won't repent. Verse 9 and 10. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of the land. Pharaoh's repeated rejection of God's word resulted in a hardened heart. And God used even Pharaoh's heart as an opportunity to reveal his glory. God will use even the sinfulness of men to reveal the glory of God. God will use the, the, the wickedness of the world. God will allow that the things that are going on all around us, he'll still use it as an opportunity for his glory. And that's what we're going to see with Pharaoh's hardened heart. So now we're going to move on, look at the first 14 verses of chapter 12. We're going to look at the institution of Passover. Now Passover is something I'm sure we've all heard of. But I love this part of Scripture. It is awesome. If you don't see Jesus in the first 14 verses, or the, all of chapter 12, you're blind. Okay? How can you not see Jesus in Exodus chapter 12? He's all over the place. And what I love about the Old Testament, a lot of people think, well, the Old Testament is thousands of years old. Do you know that it's a, it's a story about Jesus Christ? Do you know that it's hard to find a chapter in the Old Testament where you can't see the Lord? And it blows my mind that I'll talk to even pastors that don't teach the Old Testament. I'm like, what are you thinking? God gave us the whole Bible, right? 
It's all in here, and you'll be amazed at what you can see. So take a look here as we look at the institution of Passover and an incredibly clear picture of our Savior's death upon the cross. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now this is incredible. Passover would mark a new beginning to the people of Israel. He's going to change the calendar. He says, from now on, this is not going to be the sixth month of the year anymore. This is now going to be the first month. Why? Because the, the, the event of Passover is so significant that it's going to change everything. From this point forward, you're going to think of this as being the beginning. Now what's interesting to me is this too points to Jesus Christ. What's the date today? What year? 2002 years since what? Since Jesus Christ. When he was born, the calendar changed again. And a Passover that points to Jesus Christ, he changed the calendar. From that day forward, that, that month, Abib, which later became Nisan, became the first month of the year. And before, it had been like the sixth or seventh month in their calendar. The first month was in September. And now that he moved, they changed the whole calendar. And I love the fact that when Jesus came, the whole calendar changed again. Now, the world tries not to use the godly calendar. You know, they're using this before common era thing now. Pit of hell. Okay, the reality is that the calendar point, points us to Christ. B.C. means before Christ. A.D. Anno Domini means in the year of our Lord. Amen? So it's 2002 in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the date today. Amen? And people say, oh, I don't think Jesus ever existed. What's the date today? 2,002 years since the non-existent human being? Since Jesus, amen? You can't say he never existed. Read the book. Look at the calendar. It's right there. And when Jesus came, the world's been split in two. Everything is determined by when Jesus was here. Oh, that was before Jesus or that was after Jesus. And you know what? That's the way it ought to be, amen? Now, you know what's interesting to me? Is there's another one coming who's going to try to change the calendar one more time. The Bible tells us in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, that the Antichrist is going to try to bring in a new calendar. After the rapture, we're going to be in heaven, so we won't have to worry about it. We're going to be hanging out with the Lord. It's going to be awesome. But the people that are left behind are going to, the, the Antichrist is trying to eliminate Jesus from everybody's vocabulary. And the Bible says in Daniel chapter 7 that he is going to try to change the calendar. I think that's, that's really interesting. It's interesting to me, me also, again, that there's still those that use that before common era. And I'm thanking God that that's falling flat on its face right where it, right where it belongs. Verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of the month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. So everything's going to change. This is going to be the new beginning of the year. And here's what we're going to do. Everybody take a lamb on the tenth day of the month. The tenth day of Nisan. We're going to take a lamb. Now it's interesting to me that this lamb, we're going to, as we see, let me read verses 4, 5, and 6 real quick. It says here in verse 5, Verse 4, if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count of the lamb. You, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year, you take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now, verse 6, now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now this is interesting. So here's what's going to happen. Every household, all of Israel... Here's what you're commanded by God to do. You are to go and get a firstborn spotless lamb, which means you would have to go and search, right? You have to spend some time to find that perfect firstborn spotless lamb. Then on the 10th day, 
the tenth day of Nisan, significant, we'll talk about it in a minute, you're going to bring that lamb home and you're going to put that lamb in your house and that lamb is going to be in your house for four days. During those four days, what are they doing? They're inspecting the lamb to make sure the lamb's not sick, to make sure that that lamb you know, truly is healthy and it's worthy to be sacrificed. Also during those four days, can you imagine how many parents we have here? Can you imagine bringing a little lamb to your house? What would your kids be doing? Be petting all over that thing, right? Right? I mean, lambs are kind of cute. They're stupid, but they're cute. I mean, sheep, they walk into fire and stuff. They're not real sharp. But, you know, and that, it's interesting that we're called sheep, right? Well, that, that makes sense, because we're pretty dumb without Christ. But here's the thing. You bring that lamb home, and can you imagine the affection that would fall on that lamb by, by even you? Can you imagine petting that lamb and feeding that lamb and caring for that lamb and inspecting that lamb and making sure that, that lamb was healthy so that four days later you could take that lamb in and slit its throat and sacrifice it to the Lord. That's heavy. And can you imagine holding that lamb's uh, face, head, in your hand and looking at that little lamb's eyes and realizing that lamb has done absolutely nothing wrong, but that lamb was about to die for you. What's that a picture of? It's a picture of Jesus Christ. He was a lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. When Jesus was baptized, what did they say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is such a clear picture of our Lord and our Savior. Now it's interesting to me that the Lamb was ushered in on the tenth day, and four days later, the Lamb was sacrificed. If you believe in old earth, I'll pray for you. But the reality is that the earth is about 6,000 years old. And 4,000 B.C., okay, was when the world was created. The Bible says a day is to a thousand years as a thousand years is to a day. Amen? How many days is it, right here, from when the lamb is entered in until the lamb is slain? Four days. How many years from when the world was created till Jesus Christ came to earth? Four thousand. A thousand years is to a day as a day is to a thousand years. It's all in the Bible. It's incredible to me. It's very clear to me that that's what that's pointing to. There's four days between. It points to the four thousand years between the time that Jesus came to earth. Awesome. Lamb appears on the fourth day. The tenth day, this is also interesting. On the tenth day of Nisan in A.D. 32, guess what happened? Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday. Amen? Jesus came into Jerusalem on the tenth day of Nisan, A.D. 32. Several thousand years later, on this very same day that the Lord told them to go and get a lamb, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Do you think that happened by chance? There's no way. Amen? People say, oh, the Bible, it's just an old, antiquated book. It's awesome to me. Now, let me ask you a question. On the 14th day, four days later, the lamb was slaughtered. How many days before Jesus entered into Jerusalem was he crucified? Four days. How is this possible? Because God wrote the Bible. Amen? And the, digger, the deeper you dig into this Bible, the more time you spend in God's Word, the more clear and, and obvious it is to me that everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Amen? And you see this here, and you look at man, this is awesome. And you, you know what's also interesting? is when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on the 10th day of Nisan, crucified on the 14th day of Nisan, the same day that the animals' were, were, uh, throats were slit, which was also Passover. If you didn't know that, Jesus was crucified on Passover. Is that interesting? Well, it's in the Bible. And it blows my mind that here the Jews are, you know, they're, they're saying, we better hurry up and kill him because we're getting ready to start the Passover feast. Wait a minute, who's the Passover pointing to? The Lamb of God. We've got to go get ourselves a firstborn spotless lamb while Jesus is hanging on the cross. 
They just missed it completely. It's a, it's a mind blower to me. But guess what happened between the 10th and the 14th day? What did the Pharisees and the Sadducees do to Jesus? They inspected him. Just like the people did with the lamb that they brought into their house. They wanted to make sure it was healthy. They, came, they brought him in and they questioned Jesus from the day he came into Jerusalem until his crucifixion. He was questioned by the Sadducees. He was questioned by the Pharisees. He was questioned by the Roman government. Nobody could find a flaw in him. Nobody could accuse him of anything. And this was pictured thousands of years earlier when they were instituting Passover. Man, I love the Bible. It gets me excited. What can I tell you? Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. And it's so clear right here in God's Word. Now, I want you to see something else in verse 3, 4, and 5 again. Look at this. Verse 4, it says, if your house is too small, or verse 3, excuse me. It says, speak all the congregation on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. So it starts off, a lamb. Look at the next verse, verse 4. And if the household is too small for the lamb, and then you go down to verse 5, your lamb shall be without. Now we see a progression here. He goes from being a lamb to the lamb to your lamb. Here's the reality. Everybody in the world, to everybody in the world, Jesus Christ is a lamb. He's a lamb. He is. You know, from the world's perspective, even he's a good man. And he's a lamb. But she's got to go from being a lamb to the lamb. Jesus, when Jesus was baptized again, the Father opened up the sky and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Right? Not a lamb. He said, The Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But here's the most significant part, you guys. You may think of him as a lamb or you may be thinking of him as the lamb. Yeah, he was, you know what? I believe he probably is the Son of God. But him just being the Son of God is not enough to bring salvation to you. He has to go from being a lamb to the lamb to your lamb. Amen? He has to be the lamb that pays the price for you. And how does that happen? It comes when I repent of my sin. When I fall on my face and say, Lord, I am a sinner. I need you to be my Savior. I ask you to forgive me and to be the lamb, but to be my lamb. Amen? To be my lamb, the lamb for me. I love that. So you see it goes from a lamb to the lamb to your lamb. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus Christ your lamb? Did he die for you? Have you accepted him as your Lord and Savior? If you haven't, you don't have to leave here without Him. Amen? Better than an American Express card. Don't leave home without it. Don't leave earth without Jesus Christ. Amen? Verse 6, we see there, and I love this part. It says, Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Now this blew me away when I first read this. Kill it at twilight. There's thousands of people all killing their lambs. How can it be it? How do you kill it? That's a singular. That's one. How do you have kill it when there's thousands of people? Because how many, you know how many uh, Israelites there were at this time? Two million. How many lambs do you think they're slaying? Tens if not hundreds of thousands of lambs. So how is this possible that it says slay it? And you know what? As I studied it and I looked at it in the, in the, in the language, it's not pointing to the lambs that were killed on Passover, but the Lamb of God that was going to be killed one day. It was pointing to Jesus. And there's only one of Him, Amen. There weren't many that died, there's one. Through one man's righteous act, salvation came to all men. The tenth plague, death would enter the firstborn and wipe out the firstborn, or it can be substituted by the Lamb of God. So either the firstborn must die, or the Lamb must die. What's that a picture of, you guys? Either we must die because of our sin and be separated from God for all eternity, or we must let the Lamb die in our place. If somebody took that lamb and was afraid to, to sacrifice the lamb, then they would die 
as we're going to see. We'll see more in detail next week because we're not going to actually look at the actual plague occurring itself until next week. Look at verse 7. And they took some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they ate. Now this is interesting. In verse 22, it also says the blood was in a basin. And we're going to look at this next week. But they took a hyssop branch and they dipped the blood out of the basin and they put the blood here, 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 and at the feet. What is that a picture of? It's the cross. How can you not see the cross? It's, here it is. It's the cross of Christ. He came and suffered and died that we might have eternal life. And here it is in the Old Testament. And they're making the cross and they don't even understand. They're putting the blood, the blood of the firstborn spotless lamb. Your lamb. Amen? And they're putting the blood and it makes a perfect cross. And as they make it, and we're going to see in a minute, that anybody who had the blood, the angel of death would pass over. But those who did not have the blood of the firstborn spotless lamb, in a cross, death would come. What does that tell us? There's only one thing that will free us from death, and that's the cross of Christ. Amen? Buddha won't get you there. Amen? Hare Krishna, Joseph Smith, none of them. They're all dead. Jesus Christ, risen, living Savior, triumphed over sin and death. Only through Him can we be saved. Buddha was not hanging on. I haven't seen anybody with a cross with Buddha on it. How about you? Right? Buddha didn't die on the cross. And, you know, and neither did, neither did L. Ron Hubbard of Dianetics, and neither did, you know, your, your 401k or your job or anything else that you want to you want to have be your God. Nothing else. Only Jesus paid the price. What a clear picture. And here it is in Exodus chapter 12. I love the picture of the cross here. Verse 8. We're almost done. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Now this is interesting. Eat the flesh. Jesus said, unless you eat my body, you can have no part of me. Now this is where uh, Catholicism gets off, and people get off, and they start saying that, the, that when you take and have communion, you're actually eating Jesus' body. Well, the next couple of verses are going to answer that question for you because that's not the case. And he's not talking about cannibalism. Here's what he's talking about. We must go deeper than knowing about Jesus' death on the cross. We must have repentance and assimilate Him into our bodies. On Sunday, we talked about this at the Presbyterian Church. Jesus can be with you, in you, or upon you. Amen? He's with the whole world. They calm their conscience. And the reality is, if He's just with you, that's not going to get you into heaven. The with you is the thing that convicts you of sin, makes you know wrong from right. But with you alone is not enough. The Bible says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, He'll go from being with you to being in you. Now you've been born again. But Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that word is dunamis. And it's where we get the word dynamite. And if you want to have an impact on the lost and dying world around you, you, you're someone who's filled with the Spirit of the living God. And you're just pouring out on everybody you come into contact with. Amen? And, you know, the Dead Sea's dead because it's got an inlet and no outlet. And a lot of dead Christians, because they uh, feed, uh, right? They just eat, 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 big fat sheep. Uh, uh. And they're not doing anything for the kingdom of God. Big fat sheep doing nothing. And the reality is that God saved us that we might not just have an inlet, but that we might have an outlet. That we might reach out to a lost and a dying world. That we might have an impact on them. And so we must assimilate the Lord into our body. We must be filled with His Spirit. We must have an impact on those around us. Look at verse 8. It says, the flesh that night. Not in, it's interesting to me that it's nighttime. Nighttime, darkness, representation of sin. It says, roasted in fire. It's interesting to me that the only way they could do this, sacrifice an animal without breaking its bones, is to roast it. We know that when Jesus died on the cross, that not one of his bones is broken. Fire is a representation of what in God's Word? Who knows? What is it? Holy Spirit, but in this case it's something else. That's true. 
purification, or judgment. And the Lord took all the judgment of mankind upon Himself, roasted with fire. We talk about the refiner's fire, right? Purification. But also in this case, it's judgment. And the Lord took the judgment of all of us upon Himself, roasted in fire. Judgment. Look what it says next. And it says, with unleavened bread... Unleavened bread symbolizes sinlessness. It's interesting to me that it's still true today that the unleavened bread that they used in those days was striped and it had holes poked in it. It was poked, gouged. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that they scourged Him. The Bible says by His stripes we are healed. They also took a sword and poked poked His side and, and water came out. And and medical doctors say the water and blood that came out is a reflection of a heart that had been broken. And so, what was that leaven? Unleavened bread, a picture of unleavened yeast, no leaven, is a picture of sinlessness. It was striped, that's a picture of the fact that by his stripes we were healed. And it was gouged, which is a picture of the fact that his side was pierced for us. Amen? Is there Jesus all over this chapter or what? It's, It's right in front of us and it's awesome to me. And then the bitter herbs are a representation of the bondage in Egypt. Verse 9, do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head, its legs, and its entrails. You shall not let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Eat all of it, all of it. Not a progressive, ongoing work. Don't eat some of it now and come back next week and eat a little more of it. Here's the good news. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say, he didn't say uh, to be continued. Amen? He didn't say that. He didn't say, come back next week and I'm going to be crucified again. And then, you know, transubstantiation, you're going to have to eat my body again next week. And then a week after that, I can eat my body. He said, it is finished. Amen? To Talistai. Done deal. When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. We don't have to keep 40 rituals. We don't have to do a bunch of other things. Jesus paid the entire price. And we just accept his free gift and we, we will know salvation. And so it says here, eat all of it. At one moment in time, it happens right now. It's not a continuing action. It doesn't have to happen again and again and again. He, he paid the price once for all. Let none of it remain. Verse 11. And you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. This is a picture of a traveler. This guy, he's saying, eat it with a staff in your hand. When travelers travel, they carried a staff with them. You know why? To fend off thieves and wild animals. You know, they'd be walking along and they'd carry the staff and if somebody came along and tried to rob them, they, they had a stick and they would use it. Or if a wild animal came to attack them, they used the stick. It says with your sandals on your feet, with, with your, your belt on, you know, on your waist, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, eat it with haste. He's saying eat it and be ready to move. And you know what this speaks to me as Christians? That we need not to be just sitting back. Amen. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. We need to hold lightly to the things of this world. We need to be ready to be used by God mightily at any moment, anywhere, any way, any time. Amen? The reason we miss out on what God wants to do with us quite often is we're hanging on to this world with everything we have. Our God has become this world. And the Bible says that we're aliens here. We're just passing through. You know what? When I go camping, I don't worry about how nice my tent is, really. You know, I want to go camping. But if I did go camping, I wouldn't worry about how nice my tent was. You know why? Because I don't live in that tent for the rest of my life. It's temporary. Amen? And this world is temporary. 
And we need to set our mind and our focus on the place we're going to spend eternity, and that's in heaven. Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. He says, you're going to eat this with haste, and you need to be ready, because you know what? Right after you eat this, right after the Passover, guess what's going to happen? You're going to be set free. And you're going to move out of this place of bondage, and you're going to move into a place of freedom. You're going to move to the promised land. Now, that's awesome to me that they're going to take the Passover meal, and then they're going to be delivered from bondage. Again, a picture of what? That when Jesus passed over, that through the shed blood on the cross, we were delivered from the bondage of sin, and we were made free in Christ. Amen? And now we're headed where? To the promised land. We're heaven bound, as DC Talk would say, right? And we're going to heaven. And so that's where we're headed, and that's where our mind ought to be, and that's where our focus ought to be, to know that Almighty God loves us, that He died for us, so He's adopted us, and that's where we're headed. Time is short. Today is a day of salvation. Most of you know I just went to the pastor's conference. I'll tell you what. God gave me an even greater sense of urgency. You know, I'm, not, you know, I'm tired of, you know, who cares about next week? We don't know we have next week. We don't know we have a promise of tomorrow. If God's given me a heart and a burden to minister to somebody, do it, tomorrow. Do it now, amen? Don't wait. I had a friend a, a long time ago, some of you, I've told you the story, who died in a car accident the day, the day I was supposed to have lunch with him and I was going to talk to him about the Lord. He died in a car accident that morning. And man, that gripped me for a long time. And what it does is I think about him whenever I hesitate sharing my faith with somebody. I think today's a day of salvation. There needs to be a sense of urgency. Do you know there's nothing else needs to happen for Jesus Christ to come back? He can come back this afternoon and you know what? Come quickly, Lord Jesus, be just fine with me. Amen? But if he tarries, it's because he's not through with us and he still wants to use us and he wants us to have an impact on the world around us. Time is short. As you take this Passover, after you've been given, after you've passed over and you've been delivered, be ready to move. And God wants us to be ready to move. A couple more verses. For I passed through the land of Egypt that night and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Our God is a God of righteous judgment. You know what? We preach the truth in love. And here's why. Truth without love is brutality, and love without truth is hypocrisy. That's why we must speak the truth in love. Amen? You can, got, you can, get, you, you can go to churches and they'll talk about love all day long, but they won't talk about Jesus. Oh, look, that's not love. That's hypocrisy. Amen? Because God is love, and you can't have love apart from Jesus Christ. Amen? Greater love hath no man than this, than he lay down his life for a friend. Who's that? That's Jesus. And you'll go to some place and they'll do that. Then you have other guys standing with a blowhorn going, you're all going to fry in hell. That's not good either. I've yet to see anybody repenting. Have you ever seen anybody, you know, guys blowhorn blow at the stoplight, screaming at somebody, you're going to fry, man. Oh, oh, you're right. Okay, let me repent. I've never seen anybody do that. They shall know us by the love we have one for another. So there needs to be love and there needs to be truth. We need to have both for there to be an effective piece of the gospel. And he says, I am, I am going to execute judgment. I am the Lord. Let me tell you right now that only the Lord can execute judgment. No man, no government, no denomination, only God. Amen? He's the only one. We stand before God, I promise you, the board from your church is not going to be there waiting for you. They're not going to be there, they're not going to be voting on whether or not you get getting it. That didn't work that way. No voting in heaven. There's only one vote. God has it. He decides. That's it. Amen? And the good news is, you already know what the vote says if you've given your life to Jesus Christ. You're in. Because when you stand before God, you're, all your sins are going to be there, and Jesus Christ is going to come forward, and you're going to be done. You're going to be totally deserving of hell. And Jesus Christ is going to come forward and say, it's okay, he's with me. Let him in. And that's the only reason we're going to get in. Amen? No voting on it. 
And God will execute judgment. Only Jesus can bring righteous judgment upon a hardened and unrepentant heart of sinful man. They rejected His merciful attempts over and over and over again. There's only one we have to worry about being in right standing with, and that's the Lord. If you, you know what? You plus God is a majority. If you're walking right with God, you have nothing to fear. Amen? And you know what? You'll love people and you'll have a positive impact on the world if you're walking with the Lord. But too often, we want to please men. And in trying to please men, we dishonor God. Verse 13, two more verses. It says, Now the blood shall be a sign for you in the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you as a memorial, and you will keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout all generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Now, the blood, this is interesting. Blood, having the blood alone was not enough. If you had the blood and you didn't spread it on your doorpost, then the angel of death would come. So just having the, the blood is not enough. The blood must be applied. You must take the blood and apply it to you. Knowing about the blood, knowing that the blood is there is not good enough. You have to apply the blood. Now it's interesting to me, they don't talk about how many coats of paint are on the house, and they don't even talk about what kind of people are in the house. The only thing that determines whether the angel of death comes or not is if the blood is there or not. That's it. And the same is true for us. It's not how many coats of paint are on us. Amen? It's not how good of a person we are. It's not how, how much money we have. It's not how much we gave to charity. It's not how great we are. It's is the blood there or is it not? Has the blood been applied to you, to your house, your tent, your temple? Has the Holy Spirit come upon Has He poured out His blood upon you through repentance or not? If He has, the angel of death will pass over on Judgment Day. If it has not, then we have to pay. The Lamb pays or we pay. It's interesting to note here that it says, so this day will be as a memorial and you will keep it as a feast throughout your generations. It's interesting that today, the Passover has been changed for us to communion. Why? Because the Passover pointed to the cross. When they did the Passover, they were pointing to the coming Messiah. We're not doing that anymore. Amen? We're, not, we're waiting for a second return, but we're, we look back to the cross. It is finished. Price has been paid. They were pointing to the cross. Now it's interesting. I took some time, and I don't know if any of you have ever seen a Seder before, but the Jews still celebrate Passover, and they have a feast that they call Seder. Now it's interesting that it says, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me, and that's what we do when we celebrate communion. But with Passover, they would do it between the first and second cup of blessing. Here's something interesting that they do. And it's interesting that they don't even know why they do this, but listen to this and tell me what this is a picture of. Remember that he said, you do this as often as you do it. They, at, between the first and second cup of blessing, they take out three matzahs out of like a, it's almost like an envelope looking thing, and they pull these three matzahs out, and they're all made of the same material. And out of those three matzahs, they pull the second one out of the middle, and they break it in half. Then they take that second matzah, and they put it in a linen cloth, and they wrap it up, and they go hide that matzah, and then the kids all go look and find it, and whichever one finds it gets a prize. Now, the three matzahs, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all made out of the same substance. Amen? They reach in and pull the second one out. Who's the second part of the Trinity? Jesus. They break it in half. That's the crucifixion. They take it after they break it and they wrap it up in linen. What did they do to Jesus after he died on the cross? They wrapped him up in linen. And then they put him in the tomb, right? 
Well, they go and they hide it. And then whoever finds it, and it's children that look, when they bring that back, they get a prize. Well, here's what's interesting to me. The Bible says if we come with childlike faith to the Lord, what does He give us? The ultimate prize, salvation. Now, what's interesting to me is I was investigating. This is blowing my mind. I'm like, they do this every year, and they don't know what it means? This is, this is incredible. And you know what's interesting is that, that they have a name for it. And I'm going to mess it up, but it's afikamen. And it's an, the only word in the Passover feast that is not in Hebrew, it's in Greek. And you know what the word means? It means, I came. Now wait a minute, we're going to practice the I came now. Now I pull the thing out, and pull the middle one out, and break it in half, and let's hide it. And go put it over here, and then whoever finds it gets a prize. Who's that pointing to? And it's amazing to me that they pra- and they have no idea. You ask a rabbi, why are you, I was reading in the same, if you ask a rabbi, why do you do that? Oh, we don't know. It's just, we're supposed to. It's part of the Seder, right? Well, it points to Jesus. And it says, you will do this in remembrance of me, as an ordinance unto me. And they're still doing it to this day. They don't know why they do it, but we know why, don't we? Amen? That ritual points to Jesus Christ. But here's the thing, you guys. They're missing the Messiah while they're practicing the rituals. I want to encourage you. Don't ever let rituals of, of religion get in the way of a relationship with Christ. Amen? We can fall into the trap of, well, I've always done it this way. This is the way we've always gone to church. This is how we always do it. And we can get into the rituals and the keeping of all this stuff, and we don't have a relationship. It's not about rituals. It's about having a relationship with God. Amen? He doesn't want, you know, how would you like it if someone came to your house and left but never talked to you? I mean, the Lord wants us to come and meet Him here. Amen? Isn't it His church? Aren't we to honor Him? Not about the rituals. The rituals are to point us to Jesus Christ. So in closing, here's what we looked at tonight. Ken, do you have another song? Is he here? There he is. I'm blind, bro. It's not your fault. It's my fault. I got, I got these glasses. I needed a bigger prescription. Tonight, as we looked at the announcement of the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn, we saw God's provision for deliverance, and we also saw the judgment of God. The cross of Christ will either be the place that delivers us from sin or the place that judges us for our sin. They point clearly to the cross. And then lastly, I wanted to say this, that Jesus is our firstborn. He's, the Bible says he's the firstborn over creation. And he's the one that died so we don't have to. He's the perfect lamb of God whose blood was shed so ours doesn't have to be. Amen? And you know what? As we sing this last worship song, let's be thinking about that. Amen? Let's say thank you, Lord, for what you've done. You're such an awesome God. Next week, if you're going to be here, we're going to look at the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. We're going to look at the death of the firstborn. And we're going to look at the long-awaited exodus of Israel out of Egypt. Let's close with with prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We praise you, Lord. We thank you for your word. I just thank you, Lord, that it's so alive today. That, Lord, we can look at this book, and man, it's such a clear picture of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would give us a hunger to dive into your word more. That we would be like Moses, where we could hear your still, small voice. We'd spend time in your presence. Help us have an impact on the world that's around us, Lord. Not to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.